As I mentioned, we are continuing our study of the London Baptist Confession as the standard of um, what we believe and teach here at CRBC. And our present focus is on this section of the Confession, the Covenant, in chapters 7 through 20. Um, A few weeks ago, we began and we looked at uh, paragraph 1 and paragraph 2 of chapter 7. And uh, we saw that covenant is the big picture of Scripture. It is the structure of God's revelation to us. It is the DTR, define the relationship between God and His creation. We know what God has promised to do. We know our obligations to Him based upon uh, the revelation of the covenant, of covenants that He makes with His people. We also saw that covenant is necessary because of the creature-creator distinction. The distance between us and God is so great uh, that He has condescended to us by way of a covenant um, in order to have a relationship with us, for lack of a better term. We also saw that the covenant of grace is necessary because of man's sinfulness. These are things we looked at Oh, what was it, three weeks ago in chapter 7, paragraph 1 and 2. Last week, though, we focused in on paragraph 3 of chapter 7. And we didn't finish it, which is why we're returning there today. Um, Here we looked at the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace revealed, the covenant of grace defined, the covenant of grace distinguished from the historical covenants. And as I argued last week, this paragraph is key, it is central to why the Baptists rejected infant baptism. If you want to understand the London Baptist Confession, if you want to understand why we are Baptists and we are not paedo-baptists, we do not baptize infants, you, you have to start here. You can't go to the chapter on baptism. It's all based upon the covenant and our understanding of the covenant. And so, today, since we didn't finish this last week, I want to recap that a little bit. I want to do a little bit of review, open up some Q&A, and then we'll conclude by um, looking at the covenant of redemption that is mentioned in the third, uh, end of the third paragraph of chapter 7. So that's where we're at. Let um, Let me recap a little bit of what we looked at in paragraph 3. The London Baptist Confession says this covenant, and that harkens back to chapter, uh, excuse me, to the previous paragraph, the covenant of grace, the covenant by which we are saved, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. We looked at last week, covenant theology of the confession is, essentially what it's saying is, God did not reveal the gospel all at once. But the covenant of grace was progressively made known throughout history. Right? The the work of Christ, the mystery of the gospel didn't come all at once. 
started with a promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, I should say, as they're being expelled from the garden. Genesis 3.15. There will be a seed of the woman to come and crush the serpent's head. Beginning with that promise of the seed, God revealed more and more and more down through redemptive history, through types, shadows, further revelation, until, as Ephesians 3.4 says, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That's what the confession is saying. It started small with a little tidbit of information. There is going to be a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. And that's all they had. It was uh, though through belief in that seed that, that Adam and those afterwards were, were, were redeemed, were saved. But more and more and more and more was given until the full discovery, until the full revelation of it came in Christ. Now, again... Infant baptism, then, is rejected because of covenant theology, not in spite of it. That's what the, the, uh, the confession is getting at here as they're revealing this progressive revelation. Let me explain. So, um, another thing we did last week is we compared the Westminster Confession on this chapter to the 1689 on this chapter. Um, in order to see exactly what they're arguing and why they're arguing it. Remember, on this chapter, the Westminster Confession says that there is one covenant of grace with multiple administrations. So, both the London Baptists and the Presbyterians see a covenant of grace. But the Presbyterians see it as one covenant with multiple administrations. This covenant of grace was administered to Abraham. In in the covenant made with Abraham, it was administered differently with Moses. And it's administered differently in the new covenant. It's the same covenant, it's just like different arrangements. Right? I gave the analogy last week of uh, like Covenant College. They have a faculty, they have an administration. Uh, they are ministering an education. And the faculty might change, the staff might change, but the administration is still the same. That's kind of what the Westminster Confession is saying here. This covenant of grace was administered differently. But we say, this one covenant of grace is revealed progressively and concluded formally in the New Covenant. Only the new covenant is the covenant of grace. The historic covenants typified and anticipated this covenant of grace. Hang with me, I'm going to get to why this matters in just a moment. One uh, one covenant with multiple administrations. On the other hand, you have this progression and only the new covenant is administering the covenant of grace. See that? 
by implication, we're saying that the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant are not administrations of the covenant of grace. There's something else. They were types of the covenant of grace, not the reality. So the implications for this. In the Westminster, since it's one covenant of multiple administrations, covenant membership remains the same in each administration. Here you have infant males only. They were given the covenant sign in the old administration, circumcision. And so, according to the Westminster, according to the Presbyterian argument, no other additional command or example is needed to include infants in the new administration. Tracking with me, right? One covenant, multiple administrations, covenant membership remains the same. That's why you don't need a command. Uh, and, and, you know, B.B. Warfield famously said, yeah, there's no command to baptize infants. We acknowledge that. There's no example of baptizing infants in the, New, in, the, in the New Testament. We acknowledge that as well. The household baptisms are disputable. We're not told whether there are infants there or not. But he says we don't need that because it was given in the Old Testament. If it's the same covenant, you don't need another command is what they're arguing. So that's why infants were included in the Old Testament. We can just include infants in the New Testament. Baptists, because the earthly covenants are distinct, because they're progressive, because they're earthly types of heavenly realities, they point to the new covenant, then we don't have warrant to pull aspects of the old covenant into the new covenant without divine instruction. You see why this is, this is like where, what you decide on this issue will determine where you stand on infant baptism. Now, I say that as, as Reformed Protestants because there's a lot of reasons why people baptize, why the church has baptized infants. The Roman Catholic Church washes away original sin, sets you on the path to uh, um, essentially um, cooperating with grace. The Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, they all have different reasons for why they baptize infants. Presbyterians are distinct. They're different than everyone else. They baptize based upon this. And so I'm talking here in the context of Presbyterian Reformed tradition. I'm assuming that you're, you're here you're, because you're not Lutheran, you're not Anglican, you're not Catholic. So that's, that's what I'm honing in on. And when I say your view of this will determine where you end up on baptism. Because if you take away the one covenant of multiple administrations, the Presbyterian argument falls apart. That's what the Baptists are attacking here. So, again, if all covenants are the same, if they're flattened out, an argument can be made that covenant initiation is the same. But if the covenants are distinct earthly types of heavenly realities, as I just said on the previous slide, we don't have warrant to pull things in unless we're told to. And I will say this concerns more than just baptism. You, there's a lot of talk in our, in, nowadays about theonomy. Um, 
you know, the Old Testament was a theocratic nation. You had the laws of the nation were the laws of the church, vice versa. Right? Do you just pull those into the New Covenant? Well, the basis of theonomy, of Reconstructionism, does exactly that. It doesn't understand the connection between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And it just pulls things in without any mention of anything in the New New Testament. We could say the same thing um, also regarding the health and wealth gospel. Uh, Or I should say a failure to distinguish law from gospel. In the Old Testament, it was full of promises. If you obey, your earthly life is going to be amazing. Healthy, wealthy, lots of children, your crops are going to flourish, all your enemies are going to leave you alone. Do we just pull those things into the New Testament? Well, the health and wealth gospel does that. The health and wealth gospel is an under, a, a misunderstanding of the Old Testament blessing and curse system. And not understanding that is a distinct covenant that has ended, and you can't pull those things into the new covenant without divine warrant. I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, not ahead of myself. I'm going going beyond a topic of our study here. But what? Basically, I'm just trying to say, like, if you flatten the covenants out, you can pull anything you want in from the Old Testament, and you don't have to worry about what's said in the New Testament. Cody. Including being expelled from the covenant. That's very good. It depends on their obedience. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And we're talking about Presbyterian reform yes. because there are some people who do tie the expelling to the New Covenant as well. You understand what Cody's saying here? Um, in infant baptism, they, they say that the initiation into the covenant is the same, but most, and certainly the Westminster, is not willing to say that the back end is the same because the Old Covenant, you could break it and be cut off. And yet... In the New Covenant, we say, by faith, by faith, by faith, you can't, you can't sing yourself out of the covenant. Good in the Old Testament. Rob? Unless you believe in final justification. Exactly. That's, yeah, that's why some, some, sadly, some circles do hold that. And, uh, that's where the, 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 the final justification, that at the end of the day, at the last judgment... Uh, your works are going to play some sort of role in whether you are fully and finally saved or not. And that is, you know, um, it would be a Doug Wilson circles. Uh, I mean, that, go ahead. Well, so I was going to say, within that too, it talks about it there, the covenants are distinct, meaning that the new covenant is not the same as the Abrahamic, as the Mosaic. Are you going to talk about what's new about the new covenant? Uh, yes, I'm going to briefly mention it, yeah, in just a minute. Yeah, yeah, we need to consider how it is different. Um, and, and you just look at the promises. Uh, and yeah, we are going to look at that next, actually. Um, 
But just make sure everyone's tracking with me, right? (laughs) The Baptists are saying this new covenant is different. And if it's different, it means that we can't just baptize based upon the old covenant. It means that we can't just look at the covenant structure of the Old Testament as a covenant structure of the New Testament. We can't look at the initiation. We can't look at the excommunication. We can't look at the... Um, the life, the, uh, the, the land, the, the blessing and cursing, the laws, as if they're the same. Rather, what we're doing is, the Baptists here, we're, we're viewing the old from the perspective of the new. So that the new covenant and the new testament informs the old. Rather than the other way around. Which is what the Jews do what the dispensationalists do, what the theonomists do, what Presbyterian does, Presbyterianism does, infant baptism does. The old supersedes the newer, is, is actually takes prominence over rather than the other way around. And I know that's a controversial statement, uh, but that's what I believe they're doing. So let's, let's, let's get into this more. Let's, let's talk about Abraham. All right? I want to talk about Abraham because this is key not just for infant baptism, but also for dispensationalism as well. Um, Turn to Genesis 17, 4 through 8. Well, can I have a volunteer to read that? Uh, verses 4 through 8, loud and clear. Go ahead, Jacob. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan, for everlasting possession, and I will be your God. Thank you. This is really, really, really key. And what I want to point you out specifically is verses 7 and 8. Because this is the basis for infant baptism. And it is the basis for dispensationalism. And yes, I know. It's a big word. We haven't really defined what dispensationalism is. We haven't really talked about it. Um, And we don't have time to do that. So I'll mention it briefly. But I want... I want you to see, infant baptism takes verse 7. It is the foundational text for infant baptism. Because the covenant with Abraham, God says, my covenant between me and you is also with your offspring throughout their generations. And I will be a God to you and to your offspring. So, the Westminster Confession, Presbyterian Reformed Tradition, this is the key verse. I will be a God to you and your children. 
And that's why they baptize infants. But it's interesting. Verse 8 begins with an and. God's not finished. What is the other promise of the Abrahamic covenant? I will give to you and your offspring the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Infant bat, uh, Presbyterians take verse 7 as literally physically still applying. Your physical offspring, the children of believers, God makes a promise to. But they don't take verse 8 as physical because the land of Canaan, that's typological. But dispensationalism rejects the physical of verse 7 because they don't practice infant baptism. But they take physically, literally verse 8. And they say that Israel still has to reclaim the land of Canaan. And there's still a future for Israel. And we're waiting for Russia to come against them or whatever and the temple to be rebuilt. Baptists reject both of those. Why though? Why, why, why do Baptists... Based upon what I've just told you from the covenant, uh, chapter 7, paragraph 3, why would the Baptists reject the physical, earthly reality of both 7 and 8? Why? Subsequent revelation. Subsequent New Testament. New Testament, which tells us what about those physical realities? They typify that, that they're typological. Yes, yes. You understand that, right? The land of Canaan typifies the new heavens and the new earth. We're not waiting. We're, we're not waiting for the actual land of Canaan to be reclaimed. The New Testament's clear on that. The same with children. The physical children pointed to a spiritual type as well. Baptists are preparatory and typological, and thus they reject both. I'm going to get to a second in a minute when I talk about covenant children, what we see, that typological blessing of the offspring, what it leads to. The answer, of course, is Christ, but we'll see that in a moment. So So when we talk about Abraham, this is Presbyterians. This is a covenant of grace. Because it's a covenant of grace, offspring are included in it, offspring are included in the new covenant. Baptists... This is typological. We can't take those earthly realities and import them into the new covenant. I'd also point here as well, the Abrahamic covenant did not promise forgiveness of sins. It did not promise eternal life. It did not provide the gift of the Spirit. It did not change anyone's heart. It did not uh, write the law on anyone's heart. All of the blessings of the new covenant, none of them are there. Go ahead, Robert. When you talk about Yes. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yes. Jacob. Um, it's interesting that uh, so Thomas Patient and early particular Baptists uh, wrote a book called Baptism and the Station of Covenant. But uh, he was um, really helpful for me in setting uh, aside Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. 
That's a really, really huge point. You're right. The Abrahamic covenant could be broken. Um, it could be broken. Verse 14 is clear of that. You fail to circumcise, you could be broken. You could be, you, you're cut off, uh, which is not true in the new covenant. So see how it's different. Um, and I'm going to come back to this last point about... It did not promise the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and all of those things. That's key, but we need to, uh, we need to keep going. Let's talk about Moses real quick. Um, oh, thank you. Siri just found something on Moses. Uh, no, no thank you. <laughs> I've got the Bible. What type of covenant was this? And I'm looking at the time, and we don't have time to read all of these. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly skim through a few of these. Um, what type of covenant was a Mosaic covenant? Well, if you read in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, you get the promise of, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession. There is obedience that is required. Deuteronomy, same thing. Chapter um, 11, Deuteronomy 11 Verse 26, see, the Lord says, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord, and a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord. The Abrahamic covenant was, excuse me, the Mosaic covenant was clearly a covenant of blessing and obedience, and disobedience and cursing. We see this in Jeremiah 31, the promise of a new covenant. Uh, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with them not like the covenant of, of before, which they broke. If you can break the covenant, is that really a covenant of grace? Well, the Westminster Confession says that's a covenant of grace. In fact, even Presbyterians to this day are up in arms about whether to call it a covenant of grace or covenant of works. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 3, you know, even in the New Testament, what do we have? We have the fact that, the, that, that, that Paul says very clearly that this covenant, the old covenant, is a ministry of death. You, you can't get any more clear about that. It's an administration of death. Hebrews 8.13, another key passage. This will be the last one and we'll continue. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. If you look back in verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. If there's a covenant of grace, why would you call it faultless? Uh, why would you say it has fault? 
Why would you say there's a new one that's needed? More could be said on this, but the point is, oh, and, and key here, in fact, there's two more passages here. Key for, what, for our purposes today, I'm not, we're not going to go into exactly all about the intricacies of the Old Covenant, but the Mosaic Covenant, clearly, just like the Abrahamic, 10.4, Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood and bulls and goats to take away sins. It can't save. The Old Covenant can't save. Why are you going to call it a covenant of grace? Another one would be Romans uh, 3, 23 through, through 26. And in this passage, Paul's talking about the gospel. But he, you see here, I bolded uh, this section here. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God passed over former sins in the old covenant. It wasn't until Christ came where they actually dealt with so that the old covenant saints could be justified. The point, why am I saying all this? The Abrahamic and Mosaic cannot be an administration of the covenant of grace because they could not and they did not save. That's what the Baptists argue. Not just the Baptists, but the Congregationalists like John Owen. If you don't forgive sins, blood bulls of goats does nothing. If you don't promise eternal life, if you don't give a new heart, new spirit, why are we calling it a covenant of grace? All believers, whether Old Testament or New Testament, are saved by virtue of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And I I will say that all agree on this point. Even the Presbyterians, when you press them, they will agree on this point. Hebrews 10.4, I mean uh, 8.13 is clear enough. The blood and bulls of goats can't take away sins. They know that. But the Baptists are saying, because, because... They did not and could not save. You can't call it a covenant of grace. Only the new covenant is a covenant of grace. Thus, since the Abrahamic and the Mosaic were a progression in God's plan and revelation, they were temporary and earthly, they were typological and anticipatory, then the membership or terms of those covenants cannot be imported into the new covenant without divine warrant. The flattening out of the historical covenants is the basis for infant baptism and thus the the Baptists rejected it. That's what we see. Abraham and Moses prepared an earthly people and an earthly nation for the coming of the Messiah and they typified through the sacrifices Um, through other things, the priesthood, the temple, they typified spiritual realities to come. They created earthly examples that point to spiritual realities, to train, to teach, to tutor the people of God what those things meant. Right? You touched a dead animal, you were defiled. It pictured the defilement of sin. 
and you can't get it off without proper washings. You go to a temple and you had to be holy going in there because that's where God's presence was. God is a holy God and he cannot dwell with a sinful people. You need something more. All of these things are typified. So when we come to covenant children, the Presbyterian view is that God has included children in the covenant of grace, therefore we cannot put them out of the covenant. Circumcision was given to Abraham in the covenant of grace, and thus baptism serves the same function in the new covenant. The Baptist view is that the seed of the woman, the promise to the offspring, can consider the whole world. Baptize everybody in the whole world, following Genesis 3.15. It's a promise to the seed. But then that's narrowed to the male descendants of Abraham. Not the whole world, now it's just Abraham. Then it's narrowed to uh, the seed of David. Then it's narrowed more and pointed toward, finally came conclusion to the male Messiah, the one who would be cut off and circumcised for our sin. That's what Genesis 17.7 points to. That's what circumcision pointed to. That's why it was only for males and not females. Because it pointed to a male Messiah, a baby who would be born, a baby with a particular lineage, a bloodline, a child of Abraham, which is why children of Abraham were circumcised. And thus, as narrowed down to Christ, now that Christ has come, there is no more promise to physical offspring. The physical offspring has come. So, a conclusion is God has never included children in the, in, the, in the covenant of grace because those covenants were not the covenant of grace. And baptism thus serves a different function than circumcision. You can't equate them. Circumcision pointed to Christ. Baptism points to something different. Better. The indwelling Holy Spirit and the union with Christ through faith in His death and resurrection. All right, I might finish tonight, today. Questions or comments before we conclude with the covenant of redemption? Yes, Melody. right all the old testament is fulfilled and finished in christ and you know even we read earlier the abrahamic covenant and break it you're cut off christ was cut off for our sake he was cast outside the camp he was hung on a tree cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree he became that curse for us um so all of what the covenants pointed to even the obedience of the mosaic covenant 
Christ obeyed perfectly and won the promised land for us, and yet he also endures the curse of disobedience for us. Um, All of the promises of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic were fulfilled and come to completion in him, which is why the gospel is so precious, but it's also why the new covenant is distinct and different. And now God can give a unilateral promise not based upon our works, not based upon us living up to it, but receiving it by faith, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, indwelling Holy Spirit, sanctifying presence of God, new heavens and new earth. Very, very good. Very good. Anything else? Jonathan? Uh, in my talks with Presbyterian Yeah, I mean, there are definitely uh, similarities between baptism and circumcision, just like there's similarities between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. But they are different, and they point to different things, and they serve different functions. And of course, what's mentioned there in Colossians 2 that you can't escape? Well, first of all, there's no babies mentioned there, but faith. And how is that circumcision made? Without hands by the Spirit. Which is why Baptists, when they appeal to that, are like, what? why are you doing that? <laughs> Faith is mentioned and the Spirit doing this without hands is mentioned. Well, how can you say this applies to babies? To the true parallel would be circumcision, typological of um, regeneration. Yes, Romans, circumcision is of, of not by uh, the letter but by the Spirit. Uh, and the circumcision of the heart. Which is why conversion and baptism go together. I mean, Colossians 2, I think, enforces that. One last thing that we got to conclude with here. Um, So we've seen the covenant of grace, its revelation and stages, its accomplishment in Christ. uh, But the, 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 the paragraph concludes by pointing to the eternal covenant of redemption. Let me give, just give you a brief definition of this um, here in conclusion. This covenant of grace is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it alone is the, by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that were ever saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in the state of his innocency. Um, The covenant of redemption, the theological basis for the covenant of grace in history is the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. Um, If you wanted some passages, we don't have time. We have five minutes, so we don't have time to read these. But here are some passages that speak about the covenant of redemption speak about the agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for the purpose of redeeming the elect. In the covenant of redemption, the Father gives the Son... So Let me just take a step back here. The covenant of redemption is the covenant that God made in a Trinitarian covenant to save the elect. So in eternity, 
You know, we have one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, formed a covenant within the Trinity to save the elect. That's what we're talking about here. And the agreement of this covenant, as we see from Scripture, is that the Father gives the Son to be the Redeemer of the elect and requires of Him the conditions to redeem them. So the Father gives a gift to the Son. You are going to be the Redeemer of the elect. The Son voluntarily agrees to fulfill these conditions, become incarnate, die, suffer. And the Spirit voluntarily uh, voluntarily applies the work of the Son to the elect. Again, there's a lot of scriptures we could go to break this down. We don't have time to do. We'll do that later in our study of the confession. Cody, you're doing it all, right? (laughs) Uh, Next chapter. Um, The Baptists are saying, look, from this covenant flow all the biblical covenants. This is God's blueprint for our salvation. This began uh, before the creation of the world. This is the theological basis for the covenant of grace. And it directly links to what Cody will be teaching on chapter 8, the next chapter. Um, See, to come back around the point of this, the Westminster Confession sees the historical covenants as setting the pattern for the covenant of grace. And this is behind infant baptism. But the Baptists see the new covenant as an outworking of the covenant of redemption. So it's the covenant of redemption that serves the pattern of the covenant of grace. Thus, the new covenant is not a mixed covenant. As Presbyterianism argues, it concludes believers and their children. No, because its basis is the covenant of redemption, Christ does not die for people He does not save. Christ does not intercede for people who are not His. So it only includes those who place faith in Christ. Yeah, uh, I mentioned it before, believers in their children. So Presbyterianism argues that the, that, the, uh, that the new covenant includes believers and their children. Meaning there's children who are not yet believers. Is that what you're meaning? Yes, that? even children who are not yet believers. By virtue of who their parents are, they are included. Or by virtue of them being in the church. And I, I've pressed... Presbyterians on this, I pressed my systematics professor in seminary on this, and I said, did Christ die for the children of believers who have, may not come to faith? And he said, yes. I said, well, how does that, come, how does that, how is that consistent with the fact that we know that Christ only died for his elect and secured their salvation? And that's a, that's a problem, that's a question they have difficulty answering. But, so a mixed covenant, they believe it's believers and their children. Baptists say no, because it's based upon the covenant of redemption, the new covenant only includes believers. And you may be part of the visible church, but if apart from faith in Christ, you are not truly a participant in the new covenant. You're an imposter. So the conclusion on 7.3, 
Uh, hopefully you've seen covenant theology does not equal infant baptism. That's what the Baptists really were trying to say here. The covenant of grace is revealed in stages. It's accomplished only in Christ and its foundation is the eternal covenant of redemption. And all that to say, Baptists baptize believers only because of their covenant theology, not in spite of it, as is often misunderstood. It's often assumed that if you just if you hold a covenant theology, you must baptize infants. But here we see the Baptists did so because of their covenant theology, not in spite of it. 